This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. I think Guy Johnson might be over in London. We might be having some technical difficulties, uh, but we will get him to us as soon as we can. Uh, so the news over the last few days has been fast and furious. A couple things uh, are going on. Okay, you have Jeremy Hunt just speaking in the House of Commons, reversing the majority of Liz Truss's uh, mini budget plans, also saying uh, that he is going to create an economic council of four people on basically Wall Street who can help understand the markets as well as the economy uh, joining together. The question, of course, remains how long does Liz Truss actually have. In the markets, quick check in here. You're seeing a powerful rally underway all across the bond market. Gilts uh, down 35 basis points if you're looking at the 30 year, 40 basis points. I mean, these are really chunky moves, kind of reversing the dysfunction of the last couple of weeks. Uh, also, overall, you're looking at equity market closing higher. European stocks closing up almost 2%, the CAC up by 1.8%, uh, the IBEX up 2.3%. There's still clouds, there's still headwinds. But on this Monday, we get a little bit of a break. All right, let's get some more headlines here with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt has ripped up most of what was left of Prime Minister Liz Truss's controversial economic program, scrapping tax cuts and cutting back support for household energy bills in an effort to restore order to UK public finances. Hunt set out £32 billion of savings in response to a backlash against Truss's plan, which investors and pushed up borrowing costs. The UK's Department for Work and Pensions will start sending the second installment of cost of living payments to recipients of low income benefits. The cash handout of £650 in total for each eligible family was a bid under Boris Johnson's government to help consumers as prices started to creep up in the spring. And sources tell Bloomberg UK government officials have held detailed discussions with some of the biggest data center operators about ways to keep those businesses running through any potential power shortages in coming months. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Here we go. Here I am. Charlie Pellet, thanks so much. <laughs> we love Mondays. The technology today, today has been amazing. Really well. Really, really good. Hey, Guy, you can hear me now. I can hear you. I can you. hear you now. It's fantastic. These are all successful to, things. There's, there's a whole bunch of gremlins that seem to be working their way through the Bloomberg um, system today. I think we found pretty much all of them, mm. or, or they found us. Uh, That's to be pretty honest. dicey to say with an hour left to go. There's it a is, lot to be honest. I, I, I am definitely taking my life into my own hands <laughs> on that front. Uh, okay, you mentioned Jeremy Hunt. Mm -hmm. He is the new Chancellor of the Exchequer. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. In my first few days in the job, I've held extensive discussions with the Prime Minister, Cabinet colleagues, the Governor of the Bank of England, the OBR, the Head of the Debt Management Office, Treasury officials and many others. The conclusion I've drawn from those conversations is that we need to do more, more quickly, to give certainty to the markets about our fiscal plans and show through action and not just words that the United Kingdom can and always will pay our way in the world. 
That was the Chancellor of the Exchequer speaking in the House a few minutes ago. Let's talk about uh, another fun-filled day in UK economics and UK politics. Uh, we do that here in the studio uh, with uh, David Goodman. He's going to be talking about the economic side. We'll come to that in just a moment. But let's talk politics first of all with Bloomberg's Joe Mays. Joe, um, let's deal with the Chancellor first, then we'll talk about the Prime Minister. Has Jeremy Hunt done enough to stabilise the situation politically for now? I think he has. I mean, sitting in the House of Commons just then, watching him give his speech, and indeed Penny Morden speaking before that, the Conservative MPs are willing, it seems, to give this new operation a chance. I think Hunt has given them some reassurance. They like the fact that the markets have responded so well to you know, the change in fiscal approach. So it, it doesn't feel like this is a party that's about to eject this trust. That, that does not feel like where we're at. Mm. And Hunt, Hunt has played a key part in that. What I don't understand is the power then that Liz Truss will eventually hold. I was reading a lot of commentary that, oh, you hunts the CEO and she's the chairman. Is that your assessment? It does feel like that. And certainly the economic policy of the UK government has effectively been set by Jeremy Hunt now. And Liz Truss realizes she's had to kind of basically hand that over to him because she'd lost all credibility. I think her hope is that she can still carry on perhaps and be the authority figure on foreign policy or perhaps on some areas of domestic policy. I think she thinks this can still work. And the Tory party, I think for now, is going to give it a chance. But uh, for how long, we'll just have to see. In terms of what comes next, what are you hearing? Like, what is going on behind the scenes in Westminster right now? You talk about the fact that maybe Conservative MPs are willing to give her maybe a little bit more rope. Um, I guess, judging by what we saw in the House this evening, maybe that is the case. But, but they're sitting opposite the Labour Party at that point, so maybe they will rally round her a little bit for now. But behind the scenes, in the corridors, mm. what's going on? So behind the scenes, some letters of no confidence have gone into Graham Brady, chair of the 9-22 committee, and he's also keeping an eye on that. And he, 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 his position is that if more than half, two-thirds of MPs put in letters of no confidence, then they would think about changing the rules and, and, and getting rid of it. But we're not at that stage yet. I think what's happening is the plotters, those who want to oust her, are still trying to get their ducks in line, really, yep. and work out who the unity candidate would be. Mm -hmm. Do they have enough parliamentary support behind that person? But they're not there yet, and that's why this, this hasn't come to a head. But it, it could that they need to get their ducks in line. Um, the Economic Council individuals that uh, Hunt mentioned, what's your understanding of the role that they're going to play here? So Hunt's characterization was he wants as much expert input, advice and input as he can get. And that's basically an implicit criticism of what happened under Quasi Kwarteng as Chancellor and in the last few weeks where clearly the government was effectively blindsided to some extent by the financial market reaction to their plan. I think the view is that if only they'd had the likes of the Rupert Harrison from BlackRock on side to explain to them, look, this is what the markets would make of that, they might have avoided all that harm. So I think that, that that's the way to see this. He, he just wants to ensure that doesn't happen again. You recognise we lost Tom Scarlett as permanent secretary of the Treasury he was clearly a very experienced hand. So Hunt is trying to bring some of that experience back in uh, to avoid missteps in future. In terms of what Hunt does next, what what politically is now going to work for him? He, he He's talked about further cuts, but this is, in some ways, today was the easy bit. You just basically tear up what Liz Truss has done. And then you and then you start to think about what comes after that. So, so the, the, the easy bit in my mind has been done. Now he's in, into the challenge of departmental cuts. He's into the challenge of coming up with a new energy package that is going to mean that, that there are going to be winners and losers. How difficult is the next bit politically? 
It's very difficult, and it's all going to come down to that October 31st medium-term fiscal plan, where he will have to make those fiscal choices. I mean, our sense is that things like capital spending, spending on infrastructure, that's politically easier to cut because you won't get the headlines of how public services on the front line would be hurt. But things like the foreign aid budget, that could be up for grabs as well. The Tories will be looking for the least painful fiscal things to cut. But it will be very difficult for him, and I think that his entire tone, his entire approach is trying to set the country up for, you know, we're in this difficult period now, these choices are going to come. He's kind of rolling the pitch for that now, but it will be difficult for sure. Joe, really appreciate it. Always wonderful analysis. Joe Mays uh, joining us from Bloomberg. I should continue that uh, Hunt is still speaking, saying that nothing is off the table in regards to a windfall tax and not against taxing profits of a genuine windfall. So that was off the table and it was on the table and it was off the table and it was on the table. I think it's now on the table. Um, let's get some more on the economic policy of all of this. Uh, Bloomberg News UK economy reporter David Goodman uh, joins us now. David, is what's been done so far, how far does that get the economy at this point? Well, I think what's been done so far is obviously a complete rowback of what we saw, saw in September. And there's, I mean, there's barely anything left of the budget and kind of complete tatters now. Obviously, markets have liked what they've seen. And we've seen a kind of big rally in gilts there. In terms of the economy and where we go from here, we were going to get a bit of a sugar rush from all this stimulus. And now that sugar rush is probably going to be, if not entirely wiped out, like certainly there's going to be less of it. So where we go for the ne- the rest of this year and into next year, probably we're going to have slower growth and we may get even closer to that kind of real bad scenario laid out by the BOE in August with their uh, yep. their recession forecast. Kit Duke said crisis over now for the research yeah. is that that's basically it. i thought that was i saw that this morning and thought yeah that's the that's the way to think about this like the acute part of this might have been solved now but yeah. this is going to be with us for a long time and it's going to be very difficult do you think the boe hikes 100 now or can they go 75 50 25 can they go a little slower and kind of help stall the break i you think stall very the break? Poss- <laughs> i think very stall a car. Yeah, yeah very possibly like the, the markets have taken off a lot of their bets we were well under 100 last time i looked we're kind of getting closer now to the world we were in September anyway, because we the, even the energy price help has been rode back. That's obviously going to take some of that stimulus off the table. That all of the tax stuff is, yeah. is is gone now. Like all of that is less stimulus, so they may still need to lean back partly because of the market reaction we've seen. There might have to be some kind of response to that. But I think if you, all we since we've seen the budget and as stuff have been chipped away, we've seen investors' bets also chip away. We were two hundred basis points priced in, and one hundred and fifty. 125 now below 100 like you can see the direction of travel on this and i think obviously the boe will probably be more comfortable doing 75 than they would have been doing 100 so they, they might like that the, as the well. chancellor talks about the fact that he's had a conversation with the bank of england two uh, conversations he said two conversations. since he started which is not very long ago no um um i i guess things are moving fairly fast um <laughs> just in terms of how closely policy is going to work at this point are we going to see a much more um, easy to comprehend relationship now between fiscal and monetary policy because that th- there seems to be quite a lot of tension. Does that tension continue or does it lessen? I think it lessens. I think in general they're both pointing in the, in the same direction now. There's still some some they've taken both of them kind of taking stimulus off the table effectively. Yep. So in that sense, in terms of bringing inflation down, that's a good thing. And then Hunt was talking about that a lot over the weekend that like what they were doing was to bring inflation down and that meant interest rates were going to go up less and that's a yeah. really good thing. If you look at this council of advisors he's he's appointed, I know they're they're independent, but honestly if you were trying to name four people who would like know what the markets think and could kind of get markets back on side, then you couldn't these are four kind of really well respected names 
in the city and also elsewhere. You've got obviously Harrison, Joe mentioned, but Flieger and Wilhani, two very well respected BOE people, and Karen Ward as well, as you know, is a name yeah. that in the city everyone everyone trusts to have used. So it is a, a pretty. A Jeremy Hunt is Karen Ward's MP. I'd just like to point that one out. And, and your MP as well, Guy. Yeah, I yeah. believe. Yeah. She lives quite close to me. He, he likes to tell everybody that. Um, so. Going back, though, to the um, pl- uh, plugging the budget hole here, we're still looking at about £36 billion, pounds, um, and that's what BI estimates that we still need to plug at this point. Are we at some point going to be looking at an austerity government? Yeah, I mean, that is the, the very heavy hints we're getting from them, isn't it? And um, we saw even after Hunt in his statement this morning, he, he said, I'm cancelling this, I'm cancelling that. At the very end, he said, and also I'm going to have to make some more difficult decisions on yep. October 31st. So that after wiping out all of those tax cuts, that, that there's so where does growth curves. come from now? Well, I mean, it's that's that's what the outlook is, and the, the outlook no, now we're, is we're going into a recession. But is there a growth? Is there a plan to grow the UK economy? I think what we do have is that we have that energy bill help at least over the winter, which is when that real hard hit to incomes was was going to come in. That's what people have been worried about for a long time. That's been pushed back for now. I mm-hmm. think that. The kind of the risk now is that this is a bit of a gamble that energy prices come back down because well, if they don't, be- and we're stuck in this situation yeah. in in March and or in April and then again in October, it's quite hard to not do anything else because that's going to be a huge hit to incomes and that's going to make a bad situation even worse. But from what I understand is that it's not like nobody gets energy help, which is going to be much more targeted energy support help after April of 2023. Yeah, but that was the problem before. Like they did say we're going to give people targeted help, but when the price increases are so big, the people who need help becomes a massive group of people in society. It's not just the, the very poorest. Like when you start talking about energy bills that are three thousand five hundred pounds a year or, or even higher, like some of the people we're, we're kind of predicting back in October, that is that's damaging for everyone. So even if some people are getting support because because they need it, a lot of people are going to be feeling the pinch, and that's obviously going to have a knock on effect through spending and, and things like that. So yeah, that's where you see this really weigh on growth. I think further out. Do you think we're into the territory now of pulling? bigger levers for the UK economy, like immigration, single markets. Do you, I, do you think we're at the point now where the UK economy is so on its knees that bigger levers need to be pulled? I, this, is, this is interesting, but in some ways it feels like tinkering. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think having someone like Hunt in place probably makes that more likely. Obviously, he was he's not part of the, the same group of, of real kind of free market people or even Brexit supporters. He was... He was a Remainer. He is kind of more yeah. establishment in that way. And he, I think if if, if it's going to take those kind of big reforms to, to bring some kind of growth back, then that kind of does fit in with both their, both of what Trust and Hunt want. So, yeah, I mean, things like that maybe will have to change to, to kind of turn this around. Because at the moment, as you say, what they're doing around the edges. It's around it, the edges. Yeah, it's okay for the public finances and it brings mm-hmm. some form of stability, but it's not going to deliver anything near like the growth that, that the government want. Right. Supply side reforms. You guys need that. We, we need that. a lot. Yeah, we need a lot of things. To be yeah. honest, like David just shows up now. He, I, we didn't even invite him on the evening. This just he just normally like living in the radio kind of, studio, he just waiting. Just for turns us. up, has a little chat. Um, we'll we'll see whether this is the uh, the subject du jour tomorrow. I don't think this is going away anytime soon. Uh, as we've heard from Jeremy Hunt today, there are more changes in train, and we will certainly, uh, I suspect, hear more details as we work our way towards uh, October the thirty first. David, thank you very much indeed, as ever. Greatly appreciated. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So I confirm today 
that the support we are providing between now and April next year will not change. But beyond next April, the Prime Minister and I have reluctantly agreed it would not be responsible to continue exposing the public finances to unlimited volatility in international gas prices. So I'm announcing today a Treasury-led review into how we support energy bills beyond April next year. That was the Chancellor talking about the new plan to support the British public when it comes to paying for energy bills. Uh, remember, that was um, originally announced as a two-year plan. This was a huge portion uh, of the support that Liz Truss has relied on over the last few days. We're having problems over here, but we've still got this energy plan. Well, that was now effectively torn up today by her new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt. Um, let's go now to Rachel Morrison, Bloomberg News team leader for power, gas and renewables, uh, the go-to person on these kinds of subjects. Rachel, is this an admission by the British government that they can't afford to support energy prices? And if so, what are the implications? Well, it is clearly um, based on the predictions for gas prices. So at the time when, when Liz Truss announced this measure, we um, had a story looking at the, we'd seen a document based on, you know, how the government had costed this measure. And we called it an uncapped liability. And I think that's what has been proven, that when they looked at what they were on the hook for, for making up the difference from where they'd frozen prices and the potential market price, they realised that for two years it was going to be too expensive. And clearly that's part of why when Jeremy Hunt has come in and had a look at the books, he says, right, we can we can make a cut here, we can make some savings. However, we haven't seen any numbers from the government on how much they think they can save by scrapping this measure. We've had costings for some of the other policies that they've scrapped and you turned on, but not this one, which is interesting that perhaps it's something that, you know, they maybe hadn't worked through entirely, or maybe it just looks so bad that they don't want to um, give the number. Well, and, and this goes to the point, I think Javier made this um, ages ago, that all the governments were now basically short gas with no hedge. There was a naked short because they were betting that gas prices would go lower and that it would be like an endless open door of money. So without that, though, what happens if it's not fixed? Like, they're going to have to be households, especially aren't you coming up to an election at some point, too? Like there's going to be households that are going to need support. I, I can't imagine they have to pull everything all together. Yes. So Jeremy Hunt has used the word targeted, which kind of gives everybody just enough to hope that what they come up with will be better than this. So, you know, we did have some consumer rights campaigners, people like Martin Lewis, saying that the original was actually quite badly designed because it helped everybody when really, you know, the most vulnerable households, the lower income households needed more support. And, you know, they didn't need to, do, to structure it in this way. So there is some hope that perhaps what they come up with will be better. However, there are so few details that we can't even really begin to do much analysis on what the other options are because they've only sort of outlined that they hope that this Treasury review will enable them to do something more targeted. And perhaps even the whole price cap idea might be torn up at this point. We don't know if they're going to come up with a different way of pricing energy because you know, there are only so many kind of add-ons you can do to a policy before it doesn't really work anymore. We haven't had, as far as I can tell, any major push by governments at this point to suggest to people that they may need to reduce demand. 
would it be are we expecting that would that now be a sensible kind of part and parcel with this plan uh, to shrink the energy package maybe to say to people well, maybe turn the thermostat down Yes, we, we know that Liz Truss did push back on a public awareness campaign about energy use. And the industry are just mystified as to why the government doesn't do something easy like this. You know, we've seen places like France, like Germany, um, talking about this. And it's an easy way to, to get people to use less. Um, and at the industry body conference last week, this was a major theme. Why aren't the government telling people not to use as much energy? We, we heard the word efficiency used by Jeremy Hunt in relation to businesses and their package, also the uncertainty hanging over that, that what they would um, suggest as an alternative would encourage efficiency. But we don't know more than that. It seems like this is really a lost opportunity if the government doesn't finally do something to try to encourage people to think about energy use and to, you know, roll out some installation of things like solar panels on your roof or more insulation. Those kind of things could make a big difference. Um, So then to that point, I just want to take you to Europe for a moment because we're going to get a package tomorrow of... uh, uh, energy plans and how to and how to deal with rising gas prices. There's uh, in a voluntary reduction in energy use, but no wait, involuntary? You can choose to do it, you don't have to, but then they think they're gonna make it mandatory. Will they? A mandatory fifteen percent reduction? Yes, that's what the Commission has been saying this whole time, that you know they, they are aware that if they act only to lower prices, that that doesn't do anything to reduce demand. And there's been some pushback from certain countries that they don't want to make this mandatory. But the more that you do to reduce prices, the more important demand reduction becomes. And the, the EU target if it's made mandatory, will likely be quite open. So, you know, that doesn't have to come from households. It can come from other places, industry, businesses. But really, you want everybody, you know, across all the sectors to be thinking about energy use because on those cold, dark days in winter, we need to make sure that everybody isn't switching on the heating and the lights and the cooker and everything all at the same time. What are you hearing right now about whether or not the lights are going to stay on in the UK this winter? It's interesting, at a conference this afternoon, the National Grid CEO mentioned, you know, his the, the plan that they laid out for winter, that there is this risk if in this kind of extreme circumstance where gas supplies from Russia are entirely cut off, the UK isn't getting exports of gas from the continent, that there could be problems. And that really seems to be sinking into people's consciousness that this is a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we had a scoop today um, that the government's been talking to data centres about what their planning will be if there are blackouts, because obviously those are hugely important. And yeah. without data centres, you know, nothing functions. All right, Rachel, thanks a lot, Rachel Morrison, uh, joining us. Go back to the conference report. Uh, we'll get more from you in just a moment. Um, all right, coming up next, we're going to turn our focus on to U.S. banks. Bank of America out today. Super solid numbers. Goldman Sachs recombining some businesses. We're going to dig through some of this. Goldman Sachs numbers are out tomorrow as well before the bell. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London. Quick check in here on U.S. markets. The S&P is up by 2.7% right around the highs of the session. Really strong rally here. Like 98% of stocks are in the green. It's just really Fox uh, that's deeply in the red. One of the underperformers within the S&P. They're going to supposedly recombine Fox and News. 
And some investors might not like that one so much. Um, we also breached some technical levels uh, within the S&P. Uh, also feeling pretty good that the UK U-turned and now is stabilizing. So those financial instability risks are being put aside. And banks came out and delivered. I mean, some were a little rocky, like a Morgan Stanley, but others are pretty good. Bank of America uh, doing really well. We'll get to more of that in just a moment. Also, I should point out that yields are lower. Obviously, that helps tech quite a lot. The Nasdaq up by almost 3.5%. Let's get some other headlines here for you. Here's Shelley Bell. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Prime Minister Liz Truss promised growth and tax cuts, but the risks of recession are growing for the UK after her economic package backfired and left the Treasury forced to raise taxes and weigh deep spending cuts. The measures set up by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, today will pair £32 billion from the £45 billion of giveaways Truss's government announced last month in a mini-budget that triggered a sharp sell-off in UK assets. Senior UK business leaders are calling on Truss to stand down as Prime Minister after she was forced to scrap almost all of her economic policies amid chaos on financial markets. Three days after being appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt dropped most of his predecessor's tax cuts and scaled back the UK's energy support program. An American recession is effectively certain in the next 12 months and a new Bloomberg Economics model projection. It is a blow to President Biden's economic messaging ahead of the November midterm elections. The latest recession probability models by Bloomberg economists forecast a higher recession probability across all time frames with a 12-month estimate of a downturn by October of next year hitting 100%, up from 65% for the comparable period in the previous update. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. Um, so let's get to banks for a second. Um, Bank of America, the latest, the stock up about 5.5% uh, right now in the session. Net interest income was pretty nice. It was a nice 24% jump, coming in $13.9 billion. It got solid loan growth and some higher interest rates. What we heard from J.P. Morgan and Citi, too, the consumers remain resilient, dot, 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 dot. Let's get more on the dots. Here's Shanali Basic uh, joining us now. Uh, she joins me in the studio. Um, hey, Shanali, you know, Jamie Dimon talked about how in mid-2023, consumers were going to start to really hurt. Brian Moynihan didn't seem to say something along those lines. What did you think of that? Yeah, he's speaking a little later to David Wesson, and I asked him to directly answer that. Does he not share that same view as J.P. Morgan? And if not, what are they doing with their portfolio that's different than J.P. Morgan? Are they paring back to any degree on a certain part of the American consumer that might be more vulnerable into next year? Now, if you take a look at Bank of America's credit book, you do see that spending is rising on credit cards in a lot of healthy ways, but in some unhealthy ways, too, when you look at food and gas really rising, given the inflation you're seeing. But importantly, they're not seeing a rise here in charge-offs quarter over quarter. You're actually seeing a decline. So a lot of health there that is being shown. The question is, does it last? Um, let's talk about does it last. Are bankers' jobs safe at Bank of America right now? They're saying yes. And Bank of America, like its peers, have boosted headcount by the thousands. Hmm. And they have some leverage here because if you look at where they have stepped back, it is in branded ATMs. It's in some of their retail branch networks. So you're seeing them really, you know, every dollar you spend less on real estate, you can spend more on a banker. And frankly, people want to spend on bankers in areas that they want to be competitive, even in a down market, which includes trading. It does include investment banking in the hopes that they'll come 
come back. Jamie Dimon was even so bluntly asked, shouldn't he wait till next year or to a later time so that he can acquire bankers more cheaply? And he very bluntly said no. Hmm. So there is still some demand here for bankers and a reticence to let people go, though at Morgan Stanley and Goldman, we know that that uh, is starting to see some pressure. Right. A a little trickier, uh, in in essence. So let's go to Goldman because you brought it up. So we had a great story that they're going to recombine wealth management, asset management, also taking a look at putting markets somewhere else in a different type of business. What was your takeaway from all of this? Two things here. It's bringing together asset and wealth management again. That's kind of similar to what you see at JP Morgan. And remember, the wealth management business is a bit of a different profile than the classic consumer business. And the consumer business has really struggled to become very profitable for Goldman at all. It's expected to lose money this year, according to Bloomberg Sridhar Natarajan, who has profiled this business in many ways. However, they have promised over and over again that they would diversify Goldman Sachs. Hmm. So, redefining what the consumer business means in context here is important because the investment banking and trading operations are still doing enormously well and have been between 60 and 70% of Goldman Sachs' net revenue as of late. Are investors comfortable that GS continues to lose money in this space? Is this a problem for management? They clearly, it's not something that they want to do, but how much more tolerance is there for any kind of a consumer-facing business to lose money? So Goldman is trading below its book value. And take Goldman and Morgan Stanley as a good comparison, because Morgan Stanley is one of the richest banks out there in terms of how it's trading. Morgan Stanley has doubled down on wealth as opposed to the consumer. And that is the messaging that investors are latching onto. It's the business model they like. So Goldman, to get into the consumer business, there is not a lot of patience in watching it lose that much money. However, again, the the other thing here, I just want to point out one other thing, because I think it's been underreported here. The layering of management on top of the large strategic changes I think is an interesting thing for investors to digest as well. Because we're not just talking about David Solomon and how he's changing the bank. We're talking about how each of his deputies is getting alongside and also navigating the changes at the bank. And many of these executives, including the new head of asset and wealth, is an investment banker. So mm-hmm. you are still seeing a lot of investment bankers rising to the top and leading the new strategy at Goldman. So how much is it really departing from its prior roots? Oh, so many more questions, but she has a hard out. She has to go. Okay, Shanali, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. One of the hardest working people on Bank Weeks uh, here at Bloomberg. Um, so I think that there's going to be lots of fun stuff on the call about this guy um, and and a lot of pressure. And I also have to wonder, too, you have three different reorgs in four years. At what yeah. point does David Solomon get a call or be like, hey, man, like, what are you doing? This is this is too much shakeup. Like, I wonder when that conversation starts to happen. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's- Goldman Sachs CEOs are are under considerable pressure, but they don't often kind of make big strategic changes. He's made a fair few of them. Now, I understand that the the landscape has shifted around him, but Mm -hmm. has he made the right the right ones? And I just I this has to work. Basically, this has to produce results. As we just heard, Morgan Stanley going heavily into wealth that has paid off. Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs, I think it's more of a mixed report card. Yeah, but then of course, if you wind up, if the economy does hold up, and there happens to be more deals, and something else happens that spurs a lot of volatility, but in a good way, and opens up different markets, well, then investment banking comes roaring back, and you got trading that still holds up, right? Well, no, but, that, but that's holding up that, anyway, that's and that doing, buys that, them some time. Well, investment banking is the M and A landscape is getting tougher okay, and tougher. but the trading side of things, the, the rest of the bank is performing relatively well. 
But have they? Had, should they have gone down the wealth route rather than the consumer route? I, they they want to now big up mm-hmm. um, Goldman Sachs asset management. Should they have done that earlier? It seems like that's what they're kind of saying. But now you're also in exactly. market, so now you got to do both at the same time. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. That's why I'm wondering how long David Solomon has before people have that conversation. I don't know. Um, all right, coming up. What are we doing? China. 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 Right. So data apparently not released overnight like it was supposed to be. That was kind of a shocker. As Xi Jinping uh, speaking over the weekend as well. We're going to get uh, more information on that and what it means for the relationship between U.S. and China as well. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London. So over the weekend, Chinese President Xi Jinping pledged that his nation will prevail in its fight to develop strategically important tech, really underscoring Beijing's concern over a U.S. campaign to separate it from cutting-edge chip capabilities. That was one of the many things that Xi Jinping talked about uh, over the opening of the Chinese Communist Party's Congress. Joining us now here in studio is uh, Jody Schneider. She covers the D.C. Bureau. She's head. She's the She's she's the person that you go to to unlock D.C. Uh, Jody, you're so kind to join us right now. Um, what do you think the White House thought of the speech over the weekend from Xi Jinping? Yeah, and happy to be here with you. Uh, I think the White House thought it was probably uh, what they had expected to hear. There weren't a lot of surprises out of this speech. I mean, it was fiery on Taiwan, but it was no more fiery than other comments that Xi Jinping has made about Taiwan in recent weeks and months and even years. Uh, So I think this was not a surprise and no change in policy. I mean, that's what really I think the takeaway is, that they're going to be tough on Taiwan. They're going to be tough on a number of other issues. Issues. Uh, as for the U.S. relationship, you know, it's they're going to have uh, the the same kind of conflicts uh, because Xi Jinping is not changing his rhetoric. Certainly, and in front of 2,400 people, he was making all of that abundantly clear. Jody, is it a recognition that the U.S. policy is working? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I guess it depends from what perspective you look at. From China's perspective and Xi Xi Jinping's position, it's not working. They have not been able to change uh, China's stance on Taiwan, despite obviously attempting to do so and having rhetoric on their side. Uh, the, The tariffs have not really changed anything as far as China's concerned. But if you're looking at the U.S. side, you're seeing uh, China not change much at all. So if what you want is a, you know, less belligerent China uh, or or certainly no more belligerent China and no more tougher uh, than it has been, you know, on the U.S. side, I guess you think, all right, at least we're in the same position we were in before. And obviously, China's economic problems uh, have got to be giving U.S. policymakers some some thinking that they have some room to maneuver that when China's economy was looking more rosy, uh, that they didn't have that room. What's the next move here? Who makes it? What do we think it's going to be? Yeah, I think Perhaps the question had been once this was over, because this was all, you know, everything in months leading up to this was all about this week and this speech. Uh, Now that it's over, I think there's some thinking that maybe now the U.S. and China can have some kind of relationship. There really hasn't been any talks of which to speak in, in you know, months. Uh, there's talk about the, uh, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden meeting on the sidelines of the G20, maybe at a separate
meeting. And I think now that, you know, kind of everybody's had their say, so to speak, uh, maybe that could happen. But they're a long way from, you know, having any kind of deals such as to remove the tariffs or lessen the tariffs. That conversation would probably have to happen first. And there's hope, I think, uh, certainly on the U.S. side, that Joe Biden and Xi Jinping could make some progress. What should we read into the fact that this this data has not been released? Yeah, that's very interesting, uh, you know, and especially in the middle of all this to not release the data. So the obvious would be that, you know, there's, the data is not good. It's really bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not something that they want to show off. And they didn't even give a reason for the change, provided no information about a new publication date, you know, which is also telling uh, in the middle of your party Congress not to do this. It's at first a bad look at the very least, but also it really raises the questions of, uh, how deeply uh, worrisome that economic data could be for China. And, you know, there's been a lot of lockdowns, including in places like Shanghai, and they're still, um, you know, hanging on to this COVID zero policy without, um, you know, w- without much, uh, you know, mm-hmm. expectation that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah. And oh, there's a new variant. We haven't talked about that, but there's a whole thing, but we'll get to that. Um, Jody, thanks a lot. Really, really appreciate it. Jody Schneider, political news director for Bloomberg Television and Radio. Thank you so much. Uh, we truly appreciate that. Well, uh, speaking along those lines, Guy and I caught up with Mark Mobius, uh, Mobius Capital, on the TV show, on the TV show. We're going to talk more about what he said and how he looks at the China-U.S. relationship. This is Bloomberg. Thanks, Judy. Sure, thank you. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So Alex and I every day like to try and figure out what the question of the day is. Today was a little tricky one. The reason for that, well, maybe the UK crisis is beginning to fade a little bit. Jeremy Hunter stepped in, calmed markets. So the question is, what comes next? What is the next crisis? They seem to be coming along with increasing frequency right now uh, as we go through the turbulence of central bank tightening uh, and the economic slowdown that is resulting from that. So we had the fortunate pleasure, Alex and I, to catch up with Mark Mobius, um, legendary uh, emerging market investor, uh, now founding partner at Mobius Capital. And we, we kicked off our conversation by asking him that question. Where does the next crisis come from? Uh, the next crisis will probably be uh, as regards to what China is doing and their uh, intention towards Taiwan. I think that's what we're going to have to focus on going forward. Given the statements recently made by Xi Jinping, uh, I think, and the fact that Biden has said that they will, the U.S. government will support uh, Taiwan, uh, I think that will be the next crisis coming up. What do you make of what we're hearing out of the party congress thus far? Um, I have to say... Uh, Xi Jinping sounded like he is determined to maybe sacrifice growth for that uh, that geopolitical stability uh, that you've just been talking about vis-a-vis Taiwan. As investors should think, as investors think about ta- Taiwan, as they think about the Chinese economy, is that the trade that we should be thinking about? A slower Chinese economy, but a more potentially belligerent China with reference to the rest of the world? It's not only about a slowing Chinese economy, but the safety of investments in China. Mm -hmm. Because you've got a situation where, uh, for example, just now the U.S. has said any Americans working for Chinese tech companies have to quit or lose their citizenship. That's an amazing statement and has tremendous implications for the development of uh, Chinese technology. So that that is... uh, 
big, big uh, problem facing China. And then, of course, in addition to that, the lockdowns and all the rest of it is going to present big, big challenges for China. And of course, unfortunately, when the people are against the wall, they fight back. And that's probably what we're seeing with the statements made by Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's making belligerent statements. When it comes to Taiwan, then, and the and chips, for example, and the growing conflict between the U.S. and China, how do you price for that as an investor? Well, what we do is we say, okay, uh, let's look at those software companies, companies that do design for chips, that don't have fabs, what we call fabulous companies, and companies that have a leg in America. I mean, you look at any uh, Taiwan tech company, they have an office in Silicon Valley, or they have offices in other parts of uh, the U.S. So that's the kind of companies we want to be in, in case something happens, uh, unlikely to happen in the near future, because you must remember, if the U.S. puts trade sanctions on China to any great greater degree, uh, this could be a big, big problem for Chinese economy. So uh, any case, that's the way we are handling that situation. When you think about what's happening in emerging markets more broadly, we have fragmentation of the global economy. It's going to be interesting to see just how far that fragmentation goes. Ultimately, are we going to see two spheres of influence, Mark? Is that how I should be thinking about the countries that I want to select to put investments in? Is this the way we're going? Is it going to be a Russia-China sphere of influence and a rest of the world sphere of influence? How should I be categorizing geographically where I want to put money to work? I think you've got to consider the Indian sphere of influence, because India is coming up and is benefiting from the problems that China is now facing. So a lot of the manufacturing that's now in China will be moving to India. And of course, you've got tremendous advantages in India with an English population, English-speaking population. And uh, uh, you already have a huge software industry. So I think India is a place to be. And a lot of the manufacturing that's now in Southeast Asia and growing in Southeast Asia Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, will be gravitating more and more to India. So that's a, a very exciting prospect, I believe, going forward. Mark Mobius talking to Alex and myself a little bit earlier on. Alex, it does, though, increasingly feel that is the direction of travel, that, that Russia is now pretty much uninvestable, that China is becoming certainly more difficult to invest in. This poses a huge challenge, I think, for CEOs right now. How much are they prepared to invest into China? If they have investments into China, how should they be thinking about them? Uh, yeah. And and also, will literally the, their workers, if they're U.S. citizens, be able to be operate able to, and yeah. work there? I mean, that's a whole logistical nightmare uh, at the same time. Um, and I don't know how that solves itself. I, I don't know how it gets better. I can only see when it gets worse and more complicated. Uh, I don't see how it gets better. Like, there's no, where, where's the off-ramp for something like that? And I just don't quite see it. On the flip side, I mean, if you're going to onshore stuff here in the U.S., like, if you weren't already yep. onshoring stuff, like, you best be working on that now. <laughs> the, the implication of that is that we should see higher inflation as well. This will, this will lead to, right. this fragmentation will lead to structurally high inflation. He thinks inflation, he thinks interest rates in the United States are going to 9%. Yep, 9%. That's going to hurt. Just digest That's that gonna, for a moment. But you know what's crazy? Is that that doesn't seem as crazy as it would have been a year ago. 
Oh, no, definitely not. That's what's crazy about like, it. It still feels pretty much out there. I, if you, you are seeing chaos in the US and global economy right now. You're seeing an unbelievably strong dollar that is causing untold damage in, in areas that I think they've yet to fully figure out. And that's with rates where they are now. Imagine if they were at 9%. Yeah. Or imagine if they got to 9% quickly. Um, and we were talking to Kate Faddis um, earlier in the program, too. And she's her, her call for the biggest uh, crisis coming up would be a Fed policy mistake. Like, she thinks the Fed is just going to push, 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 and the underlying issues won't be as bad as they think, and they'll just push us too hard, too fast. And that's going to be... Um, the resulting scenario. And we heard from James Bullard over the weekend as well uh, at the IMF. Um, is it? He seemed to imply you could see another 75 in uh, December, not only November, but also December. I mean, now, like, how temporary can you say that 75 bips is if you keep doing it? Well, <laughs> That's it does. the norm, it, it, then. Yeah, it's rapidly becoming the norm. Yeah. And at what point does policy get reformulated? And what does 50 feel like after all of that? I think that's another question. Just psychologically, will we mm. go back to 50? Is that going to feel like a, a sort of a sense of relief? Which is crazy because it's also still 50. Yeah. yeah. And 50 not that long ago was a really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, tomorrow we continue with bank earnings. We'll continue to monitor what is happening there. We get Goldman Sachs numbers. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable from Alex and from me. Good evening. <laughs>